On today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, we're going to talk about motivation. What motivates you? What motivates you? What motivates your clients? How do we get ourselves to be motivated if we're not currently? How do we get our clients to be motivated if they're not currently? Very important coaches' questions, coach questions for coaches. You might even say they're essential. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Hey there, and welcome back. So, yeah, motivation. Very interesting, isn't it? You know, before I go any further, however, I do want to show you something. If you were here last week or if you saw the podcast that was recorded last week, I talked about this light here. That's there. It's... um. It's just a light, but it has a bulb, a Wi-Fi bulb in it that does things like this. I can I can make it go up with my phone here, my device. I can I can make it go up and down in, in intensity. I can change the color of it. It can go from blue um, to a, more of a purple to a red or uh, orange or yellow or green. It can do a variety of things. But um, what's most important, the reason I talked about it last week, is that I can make it. Um, I can program it to wake me up in the morning. Not that particular one, but another one, same uh, technology. In the bedroom, which starts at 6 o'clock in the morning, gets on very dimly, and then it gradually gets brighter and brighter and brighter until it's full bloom. I will admit I usually am awake as soon as it turns on, you know, a little bit. But it's better to me than an alarm going, I hate being scared awake in the morning, you know, jumped out of bed. So I much prefer this little, you know, almost natural way of doing it. It's like waking up in the summertime when windows are open and the sun's coming up and the birds are tweeting. It's like, oh, how oh nice. You know, so I emulate that or simulate that as much as possible with this thing. Anyway, I uh, just wanted to show you what my, my phone is a new phone for me. And so the old program didn't work quite well when I tried to demonstrate it last week. So... Anyway, so today we're talking about um, motivation. And, and I, I was thinking about this because I recently had a client who uh, had has grand plans, grand schemes, grand plans. Uh, and yet every week we seem to come back and say, how's that going? And it's like, oh, well, not so much. And, and it's like, how do you get another person to be motivated? How do you get yourself to be motivated? are kind of the age-old questions. And I also was thinking that I'd seen a book. This is now a while back. It's probably maybe even 10 years ago. Um, I saw a book that I picked up and looked at for a while in the bookstore, but it had, did not purchase, called something like A Thousand Ways to Motivate Yourself. And I thought, well, man, what a waste of money that book would be because what motivates me is not going to motivate you you know there's some universals thing uh, you know there's the 
expression that we all move away from pain and towards pleasure. Yeah, there's there's truth in that, of course. But what is that pain? What is that pleasure? Remember, um, I was working with a fellow whose, whose name I'm trying not to say, you've heard of, um, but just was always saying that, you know, you have to turn your shoulds into musts. If you talk to yourself in a certain way and you say, I, I should do that, probably won't. But if you can turn that should into like, I must do that, then you will do that. That was his uh, his thesis, let's just say, his theory. Didn't work for me. Maybe it, it worked for him just fine. It did not work for me. Siri just thought I was talking to her. No, I said it didn't work for me. So I'm not talking to you, Siri. Sensitive. Um, it didn't work for me. To say I must do something had no impact on me whatsoever. I found that for myself, if I said I have to do this, then I felt a sense of motivation. I felt a sense of going. So there's that. We've talked about that before. There's a podcast whole episode on um, modal operators of necessity and possibility. You can you can find that if you if you want to. I won't spend too much time on that today because we've already done that. And nice reminder, the way you talk to yourself, you know, your unconscious mind listens to you. So how do you talk to yourself? What questions do you ask yourself? How do you focus on things? Is it something that you think I, I'm motivated because it's going to give me pleasure? Or I'm motivated because if I don't, there'll be some consequences to pay, i.e. pain. So it gives you that propulsion system of moving in this direction away from that towards that. Get that set up. You've got the propulsion system going. That's a really good thing. You need to find your motivation and what's what's in it for you, what's going on for you. And it's going to be different for everybody. I think that is the critical piece I want to get across here today, that you find the key for the particular lock that is your client or is you. As an example, um, I, I have noticed that a lot of times some well-meaning coaches really emphasize positive self-talk, that you must have positive self-talk. You want to be gentle with yourself and give positive self-talk. Um, and, and there's a lot of value to that. There's a lot of goodness and value to that. I have nothing against that. And does it motivate you? is the bottom line question is what is going to get you motivated to do and accomplish what it is that you have set up to do. I will say there are people in this world, and I can name a few right off the top of my head. I'm debating whether or not I should. Uh, one is a professional football player who did extremely well in his career, quarterback who did extremely well in his career, but probably wasn't very happy like ever. Um, in throughout his career, at least maybe now that he's retired, he's he's feeling differently. But part of the thing that motivated him was the effort to get approval from his dad, and he never did because his dad was not that kind of person, you know. So the dad just withheld affection. Well, if you're good enough, then maybe, but it was never good enough, you know. I just got an A. Well, were you the best in the class? Could have done better. It's never, never good enough. Throughout his athletic career, he's always trying to, you know, show that I am good enough, and never was. Which for him made him go to great heights in his profession. That's why I'm speaking about him. That's why we 
if I said his name, you'd know it. Probably wouldn't hurt to say it, but just suffice it to say, if you're into American football and all you've heard of this guy, um, you might even know the story. You might even say, why don't you just say Dan Marino? You just say that. Let's get it out. Nothing wrong with that. So I don't know why I don't say it, just it's private. I think, you know, Dan would have to give me permission. I don't know. Anyway, so the point is, he was motivated. It wasn't a pleasant feeling. It got him to where he wanted to go. Is that good? Interesting question, isn't it? Now, if a coach had gotten hold of him before his professional career and, and gotten him over that need to get, you know, feeling of good enough from his dad, if he'd cured that of him, maybe he just would have quit at that point. Say, well, good. I've achieved what I've come for. I don't need to play football. Heck with that, you know? Maybe, maybe. So we want to be able to, you know, feel good and balance that with being motivated to accomplish what we want to accomplish in life. Yeah? So I think I might have told you the story once about piano playing that I had a piano teacher. If I haven't told you the story, I'll tell you a brief version of it really quickly. I, I am pretty sure I told you this. Um, long time ago, college years, I was playing pretty good. I was playing well enough to get the attention of this composer at my college who was given an offer to have a piece of his performed at Carnegie Hall the following year. Now, this particular composer was a great inspiration to me. He was a great perform, per, uh, professor. He was also a great pianist. He had been a concert pianist in Canada before he came to the United States and started you know, his career as a professor of composition. So he was a great, he was probably the best pianist in our college, although he didn't teach that. He taught composition and music theory. So when he got this offer to teach, to have a piece of his performed at Carnegie Hall, I was kind of thrilled when he asked me to be the performer. And he said that he would give me a, a, a special deal that he would um, give me free piano lessons in an effort to you know, get good enough to play these pieces, which were quite substantial um, at Carnegie Hall the following year, but for basically a year of free lessons from this really basically good piano teacher. So um, I said yes. And the first lesson, I, I think I've told you the story, I'll try to tell it quickly. Went in for the lesson, he showed me all around the pieces and we had a very nice time. Second lesson, I come in and I play about for about five minutes and he stops me and starts just, just uh, teaching me another lesson. He yelled more than I'd ever heard anybody yell and louder and stronger and with a better vocabulary than most um, people who ever have attempted such vitriol. Is that the right word? Anyway, um, I sheepish, sheepishly went out of his uh, studio and went to the closest you know, practice room and practiced all the rest of that day and probably eight hours a day for the following week and finally went back to his uh, second, third lesson and uh, played for him. And, and he said, okay, O'Brien, now I know what you're capable of. I will accept nothing less. Yeah. So there we see uh, motivation in action. So that pain that he inflicted by this yelling and horrible stuff that he was saying, which unfortunately really hit home because they were true, um, 
motivated me to to practice. And I didn't want that kind of pain again. And then when I finally got this third lesson and he said, oh, that was really good. And that's the bar you have to jump over every week or you get that. That was motivating for me. Now, he'd been a professor of mine for four years at the post point. He probably knew me better than I wanted to admit that anybody could. And chances are good. He knew very, very well what would motivate me. You know, so he I wouldn't call that positive self-talk. <laughs> anything but you know an example so but it worked for me to be motivated to do that interestingly i had another coach who was a running coach in brooklyn named harry uh harry is an amazingly wonderful man who donated a great deal of his time he was the by the way those of you who are into running harry murphy his name was the um creator or the founder of the prospect park track club my track club in Brooklyn. And um, although there were no tracks, it was all it was mostly a marathon running club. He was also the guy that first laid out the interborough uh, route from Staten Island through Brooklyn to Queens to Manhattan to the Bronx and back to Manhattan marathon route that is so famous now. He mapped that out at the behest of Fred LeBeau. So Harry Murphy, great guy, but great coach as well and had an incredible knack for noting and noticing and utilizing what it was that made each different runner on his team tick, what motivated them. I, I saw him often with certain people being the nicest, like, oh, you're, it's okay, you're good, you know, encouraging, positive self-talk kind of, wow, beautiful stuff. And then he turned to me and go like, is that your best, O'Brien? <laughs> you know, <laughs> just oh god! And I was going like, no, no, I, I, I can, I can do better. I'll show you next week. I'll do better. So um, <laughs> it was remarkable, and and I watched this with sort of two minds. I was there, you know, getting it from Harry, but it was also back in my mind going like, that's pretty cool that he's able to do that. You know, that he's able to really, you know, fashion his coaching to who needed to be coached in what way. That really, in a sense, became my model for what I tried to do with my coaching clients because everybody's different. One of the hallmarks of Ericksonian hypnosis, I consider myself to be a, a student of Erickson. I was about to say an Ericksonian hypnotherapist, but I don't want to go that far. Um, student, certainly, of his work, I teach neo-Ericksonian hypnosis based on the idea that it's beyond what he taught because NLP and Stephen Gilligan and other people have, have taken his things, made it possible for mere mortals such as myself to understand it and get to that level. All good. Nevertheless, Erickson often said that everyone, everyone is as individual as their own thumbprint. Every individual is as individual as their own thumbprint. You've got to tailor what you do for the individual in front of you. You can't have a certain just, you know, hypnosis script book and just read the same script to everybody. Script, scriptnosis, some people call it. You can't do that and expect to get good results with everybody. You'll get good results with some people. You'll probably get great results with some people and not such good results with others. And that's the, that's the point. 
You want to get good results with everybody. That's what you're getting paid for. That's what you want to do as a coach. So you want to be able to find the individual motivation for the individual that you're working with. Quick story. I was once um, making a living as a piano teacher. And I realized that every year when I got a new crop of piano students, because I was teaching at a, at a school, teaching at the Berkeley Carroll after school program in Brooklyn. And also was at the time I was teaching at the uh, Brooklyn Conservatory of Music. Anyway, um, every year I'd get a new crop of students, you know, some repeaters, of course, returners, but then there'd be new ones. And I'd always guess, try to guess which of these little children coming in would, you know, be a ongoing student, would, would keep going, would, would sort of get it and want more and become a pianist and stuff. And there were a few, but I always was trying to guess who of the new crop would, would do that. And I was almost always wrong because there was always a bunch of kids who'd come in and be really enthusiastic and they'd take to it and they'd love it and they'd go for it. Um, and then they'd get involved in tennis or they'd get involved in something else or, you know, some other flavor of the week would come along and, or something or they'd move or whatever. Um, so generally speaking, what I discovered was that what worked, what really got a student to be, you know, go from interested to competent to being good at playing the, the piano was um, how much they practiced. And that almost invariably, by the way, was a factor of what their parents' involvement was. Just by the way, their coach, their personal coach, their parent would was the factor of how they got from enthusiastic and interested to competent to being good at it. You know, those are the stages they needed to go through. And it was having that parent with them all the way, that coach, if you will, with them all the way that got them there. Just saying. So it was the practicing that got them to be actually competent and ultimately good. I think I've told you about the fact that there was a, um, a study done once about piano students. Actually, I'm, I'm about, to be, about to be quoting two different studies. One was a kind of study about generally speaking, excellent, excellent musicians like Leonard Bernstein. It was a while back. And um, what they found is that there was general pattern amongst people who became great musicians, that they started off, their first teachers were, were teachers who instilled a love for music. The first teacher was a teacher that got them to love the instrument. So they just loved doing it. Didn't matter how good they were, they loved it. They loved it. Second teacher was a teacher who taught them skills. You know, so, okay, that's that's nice, Johnny, but let's get your fingers moving properly and let's count, you know, one, two, the, you know, to do it properly, getting some skills in, installed. And then the third teacher was a master teacher. Now, there might be other teachers in there along, but there's basically those three stages. The master teacher would teach you how to play music, you know, how, how to make music from those notes that you're learning to play in the right order. So that sequence was really critical to great musicians. A second study was a study where they just took, you know, Lots of lots of piano students, and they um, they rated them as to how good they were at the beginning and how good they were after like 
two years or five years, whatever the duration of the study was. And they discovered something, that the kids who were the best after the duration of time in the study were the ones who practiced the most. There was no variation for talent. It wasn't like there was an outlier whose kid was really good in spite of the fact he only practiced once a week. Um, no, the kids who practiced the most were the best. One-to-one correlation. One-to-one correlation. That's it. The practice the most were the best. Practice the least were the worst. Just that was it. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, it doesn't mean they were great musicians. It wasn't, didn't mean they were the Leonard Bernsteins or the Yo-Yo Ma's of the study. Just meant they would be very, very competent practitioners, you know, performers, players. Right? Not necessarily to that place where they're great, but they're they're really good. Chances are good, however, the people who are also great practice the most. I'm guessing that that's true. Anyway, so how do we get ourselves to be motivated to do that sort of thing, to be moving in that direction? One of my piano students back then was really talented. She was a smart girl, really talented. Sometimes she'd come in and just knock my socks off. She was so good at playing. And other times she'd come in and clearly had not spent any time at the instrument that week. And so one day I said to her, so, um, and I will not say her name. So I'll make something up. I'll say uh, Stephanie. Um, what What is it, Stephanie, that uh, if you ever have homework that you haven't done and your mother realizes that you have homework that needs to get done that you haven't done yet, what does your mother say to you to motivate you to, to complete your homework? And when she says, oh, mom just looks at me and says, if you don't do your homework, I'm going to kill you. She said it with this tonality and gesture and intention. And so, oh, oh, it's okay. So that end, at the end of the lesson that week, I said, now listen, Stephanie, I want you to practice every day. And, and if you don't practice, I'm going to kill you. And I just said it with the same tonality that she said her mother did it with. And she looked at me with these like saucer eyes. Like, <gasps> but she practiced. She came in next week. It was, you know, like my teacher Donald Dolan. Like, if, you know, that's the that's the level you need to get to. She got there, and so while my vitriol was nothing like his in my previous story that I told you, it was still every week after that. I'll tell you, it was maybe a slight variation, but it was pretty much: if you don't practice, I'm gonna kill you, and it. Work. She is. She is now the um, concert hall. Anyway, good story. Really true. Really happened, and she really was motivated. So you have to find out what it is. Was that positive self-talk? I'm going to kill you. No, it's not. It's not. It worked. It worked. She became a really competent pianist. She really did. So once that motivation gets kicked in, and people start, you know having the habit of practicing every day, every week, every month, then you don't have to be, you know, kicking the tires, you know, motivating that strongly because they've built the habit. They've installed it in themselves. They have their own intrinsic motivation. There's a difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. If you get 
extrinsic motivation. It's that person saying, if you do it, I'm going to kill you. That's outside, coming from the outside, extrinsic. Is that better or worse? It's neither. It's just outside motivation. It's motivation. That's the key point. We want intrinsic motivation. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And is it there? If it's not, then add extrinsic motivation. <laughs> One of the extra, because you want them to build the habit, right? You want them to build the habit. Remember the ease process thing we talked about in previous things? If they do it every day, they build a habit of doing it. So whatever gets them to do it every day builds that habit of doing it. They become a runner, they become a writer, they become a musician because they do it every day. So get them going, get that ball rolling, a ball in motion tends to stay in motion, right? So we wanna get that going, get the extrinsic if you have to. And so the, the intrinsic becomes um, you know, found along the way. There's no value in saying, it must be intrinsic or it's no good. Motivation is good. So whatever motivates you is your motivation. Now, also want to point out that there are some people who, um, once they become good or habit-filled, you know, doing it regularly, then they don't really need uh, inspiration. Quick story. <laughs> I'm giving you a lot. And some of these you've heard before, but there's a, a painter by the name of Chuck Close. Chuck Close is a very famous painter. Um, he just died recently, a few, a few years ago. But in the um, early 80s, 70s, maybe, I, I've, I, I was a musician and um, came to New York City for something. Maybe I had moved there by then, maybe it was the 80s. But I walked into the Museum of Modern Art and I saw across this big open area, this massive photograph of um, a composer by the name of Philip Glass, who was, was a picture I recognized. It's like, oh, that's a picture of Philip Glass over there. I wonder why there's a big photo of Philip over there. And so I walked across this massive hall and as I got closer and closer to this painting, which was huge, it was like, 12 feet by 12 feet square black and white photograph. I got closer and closer to it. I realized it it wasn't a photograph. It was a painting. It's a painting by Chuck Close, the, the painter. And as I got right up close to it, it was like, oh my goodness, look at this. You can see the brush strokes. It's a painting. Amazing. Really kind of remarkable. Um, photorealism painting, but you know, interesting. He got famous for those things and obviously using the Museum of Modern Art. Pretty good. Somewhere around 1993, I don't know, somewhere in that realm, he was at a party, Chuck Close, and um, collapsed. And and they rushed him to the hospital. And he had this sudden onset of this weird-ass disease that basically made him a cripple. He was a paraplegic, or at least a might have been a quadriplegic for a while. So he had to get around in a wheelchair after that. And so what's really interesting about his career is he, he didn't quit. He said, this is the quote I want you to pay attention to. He said, he said, inspiration is for amateurs. He said, the rest of us show up and get to work. 
I love that quote. Inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us show up and get to work. He would then go to his studio. He had he was very wealthy. He had a you know a lot of assistants and stuff. So he had the studio. He would get to and he'd get there in his his wheelchair. Somebody obviously would drive him there, or maybe he had an equipped van. He could do it himself. I'm not sure how he got to the studio, but he would go in with his um, wheelchair electric wheelchair motoring up and and they would prepare this massive square canvas i think they became smaller than 12 by 12 maybe right? 8 by 8 but still his signature big square canvas and they'd have all these grids painted on it they'd have painted all these like 84 grids or 64 you know square grids on this canvas and then they would Velcro a paintbrush to his hand. And so he must have been just a paraplegic. And, uh, but he couldn't control his fingers. So they'd Velcro a paintbrush to his hand, and he would dip his brush into a palette of paint and then start filling in these squares on this, on this canvas. So now, when you look at these canvas, these pictures, if you're looking close up, you can't tell what it is. It's just a bunch of globs of paint. But now, if you see one of these paintings from a great distance away, you go like, oh, look, there's a there's a painting of Philip Glass or whomever it is. He's done self-portraits. He's done a lot of different things. But you can see that it's a big face, just like he normally does. From a distance, it looks totally like that's that person. Close up, it's just a bunch of globs of paint. But the point is... Inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us show up and get to work. So we need to find our motivation. You need to find motivation for your clients. Help them to find it for themselves. Help them to build it so it becomes intrinsic so that they won't need us eventually, right? So they have their own intrinsic motivation. They show up, they get to work. They do what they need to do for themselves. Yes, ultimately, it needs to come from inside. We help them sometimes with intrinsic stuff to discover what is that key to unlock the brilliance that is your client. Or what is that brilliant that is you. That's it. That's it for today. So thank you for tuning in. And uh, I'm going to... Go play with my light bulb. <laughs> See you real soon. This has been the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure seeing you again. Hope to see you again real soon. Come back next week when we have another gripping and exciting episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast. And if you want to, you can find out more about us, each and every one of us, at EssentialCoachingSkills.com. Thanks.